All right, welcome back to the Park Hills Podcast. This week, Pastor Alex and I are going to dive once again into the book of Job and all the mighty mysteries that go along with it. If you are enjoying this, there are other podcasts and other things to look for at our website, parkhillschurch.com, or the Park Hills Church app, which you can find at all of the app stores. So this week, Alex, yeah. we're going to talk through a different aspect of Job. So we covered Job last week, but this week we wanted to kind of dive a little deeper into it. And I joked with many coming back from sabbatical that I had at least four hours of material. I, I, don't, I don't think that was a joke. It really wasn't a joke. And so I had to really discipline myself to stay in the lanes. So this is a three and a half hour podcast, at least, maybe four. All right. Hours. No. I'm ready. I brought my lunch. I know you're ready to go, and I am too. So I think one of the first things we wanted to talk through was just this question, right, of what exactly is Job? And there's a, a bit of a debate out there on it. And please understand, when we say things like this, we are not advocating necessarily for one side or the other, but we just want to be really honest on the podcast, honest in our sermons. And if there's a, if something... I. I guess what I'm afraid of is people building their house on a on a weak foundation, so to speak, and then later on they find out something maybe was there's a different view out there, even within Christendom, and they're like, you never told me that, so then you were telling me lies the whole time. And it's like, whoa, that's not even close to what was happening. I, I was aware of it, but I have an opinion on it. I have a, a position. So the first one here is, is Job a biography or is it a parable? And this is actually a discussion that evangelicals are having. This isn't yeah. like liberal scholars versus conservative scholars. This is within evangelicalism. Right, right. Because I think it was two or three times ago on the podcast, I, I had a very skeptical view of people who challenged like authorship or reality of certain stories in the Bible. I don't think this one quite fits in there. But I think to your point, Chris, and you mentioned this in the sermon, which I thought was really good, this whole idea of deconstructing your faith often centers on, well, I've been taught this, and there's a disconnect that says, um, I have to believe this one piece of minutia, and if I don't, the whole Bible falls apart, or the whole system of belief falls apart. Exactly. And there's maybe a misunderstanding about how important some of these things are. You know, one of those that I've heard is your view on the end times. Like, if you're not a premillennial, uh, you're not taking the Bible seriously, and then and then kids and students hear that, and then they look at the Bible, and they, they might not land as premillennial, and they right. think like, wow, I must not be a Christian anymore, because if this isn't true, what else in the Bible isn't, or what else don't I believe about the Bible, and then it all right. falls apart. Uh, so again, this, uh, I think it's important that we do look at Job, and it doesn't fit into the skeptical ca- category, but into the category that... This uh, could be a biography. This could be a true story. We could see this as like, yeah, Job was actually a guy that lived and walked around on the earth. Exactly. Um, Or it could be a parable. You know, Jesus told a lot of parables, and the meanings of his stories were not lost when he said, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed in the field, or the the kingdom of heaven is like, um, you know, like I think the shrewd manager is a really good example of that, where that— 
Jesus tells this parable of this guy who knows he's going to lose his job. So he goes to all his boss's creditors and like cuts their debts in half and, uh, excuse me, cuts all their debts in half, and then Jesus commends him. And he's like, well, he was great because he was shrewd because he was thinking about his future. And Jesus is just trying to illustrate, like, one tiny point. Right. You know, think about your future. But I've had people come come to my office and be like, I, I'm i a boss. I have a business. If my people did this, I would never be commending them. Like, I would be right. so mad at them. Like, exactly. yeah, you should. But Jesus is just setting up a hypothetical here to help. So anyway, looking at uh, Job, looking at it as a biography, I think there's some— evidence some really good evidence actually that job is a biography um ezekiel and james both treat job as a real person right, right. If you read ezekiel 14 14 even if these three men noah daniel and job were in it they would deliver in it goes on like three two guys that noah and daniel are clearly historical persons right and ezekiel just kind of throws job in there uh james 5 11, behold we consider blessed who remain steadfast you've heard of the steadfastness of job right seen the purpose of the Lord. So it seems like, although that could be like, that could be a parable story that James is referring to. Um, it, the beginning of this book is kind of debated. Is this right? Is this biography or not? Some right. people say, you know, Job 1.1, 1, 1, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright. So it's kind of like a Sounds kind of like Baratare, like once upon a time, there was a man who lived in right. us whose name was Job. Job. Although First Samuel says, the, the book starts out, there was a certain man of Ramath Zophim in the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, all on and on. And it basically gets you to Hannah, who has Samuel. Which really quick, side side note, do you ever start reading Old Testament stuff out loud and you're like, I wish I hadn't picked this verse to read. Why did I start <laughs> saying those names? <clears throat> There's moments where I will practice a passage in front of a mirror multiple times in a week to get ready for a sermon. And I, when I start pronouncing it in front of people, I'm still terrified. So yeah. if you get one thing out of this podcast, don't read. Yeah. <laughs> Avoid some of the genealogies if you're going to no. teach a sermon. So yeah. yeah so, so, so this, so you were saying that the, the beginning of Job might seem like a fairy tale, except for there are multiple books and you're using for Samuel as an example that starts off in exactly the same way. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And then just, uh, I, I don't think we throw out historical tradition, like not right. the, the uh, veracity of this book or whether it's a biography or a parable has not really been challenged until more recently. Uh, maybe right. it has a little bit here and there. Um, but again, this is, this is where the skeptical, like if we, if, the history of Christianity has believed this for thousands and thousands of years, and all of a sudden, we're like, ah, oh, I don't think so. We better have a really, really good reason right. to maybe think not. Totally. So that's kind of on the biography side. Like, this has been accepted for a long time. Uh, other biblical authors seem to think so. Uh, beginning is kind of similar. But then there's also this idea that maybe this book is a parable. Uh, Job is described in very idealistic terms, right? We know in our theology that nobody is perfect, right? But Job is is presented as like this perfect guy. He's so perfect. Not only does he not sin, but he pays for the sins of other people, right? Right? His kids, um, which many have pointed out, this is a very Christ-like figure in the Old Testament who also has no connection to Israel. Yeah, which is an interesting move. So keep going. Oh, yeah. Oh. 
uh, his the conversation is in high poetry. Yes, like this is some dense and really beautiful poetry. And I don't know when I'm like when I have the flu, like poetry is not coming out of my mouth. <laughs> So you're it's saying probably the opposite. So you're of saying when Job is struggling with like sores and everything all over his body, he may not be like, and then yeah. behold, I see her in the mirror. Like, right. that's not happening. Right, right. right. Yeah, I'm with you. Read, read some of his poems, and you're like, <laughs> like this guy is not doing well, and he has just this beautiful, beautiful poetry. Right. Um, like when Shakespeare, if he ever had the plague, I don't think he's writing Hamlet. You know, like yeah. it's just not happening. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, there are two uh, influential uh, scholars that I have read a lot of and um, one of them was was Dr. McGarry he was one of my professors at Trinity and then Daniel Estes was actually at Cedarville when I was there I believe he was at Cedarville um, but I did not take any classes but I read his book handbook on the the wisdom books and the Psalms mm-hmm. and both of these guys very smart guys very evangelical committed to the Lord yes. uh, very strong scholars and both of them actually land on the side of seeing this as a parable I have a quote here from uh, Dan Estes book he says, Job is better explained as a divinely inspired work of the imaginative literature in which the author explores the lofty theme of the problem of evil by setting forth an ideal case study and the construction, constructing of a series of speeches that represent the best efforts by humans to resolve the issue. Right. By this, he means the book of Job is able to transcend the necessary limitations inherent in any actual human example in or to focus on the theological issue in its most comprehensive dimension. So to kind of unpack that, basically, when we look at Job, there's there's so much crazy, there's so many crazy things happening here. Right. You have uh, Satan or Hasatan, we'll get into that, interacting with God. You have this picture in the divine throne room, and then you have God who's allowing evil. And so you say, well, is, is God actually allowing evil? Is he causing evil? You have Job who suffers for seemingly no reasons, um, yeah, Hasatan doesn't show up at the end of the book. You know what? What happens? Did did um, did the Satan win? Did God lose the bet? You know. Right. Uh, so these two guys land on the. You know what? The there's there's three. Uh, Esty says there's three purposes: challenging the mistaken assumption that personal sin is always the cause for suffering. Right. Exploring human limitations and probing the issue of divine justice. Right. And revealing that as sovereign ruler of the universe, Yahweh is free and beyond human comprehension. So to, to teach those three ideas, um, the the writer of Job has set up this parable that doesn't have to adhere to strict reality. That's kind of the point that Estes is getting at right. here. We can kind of loosen the bonds of reality of the way that uh, these things actually happen so that we can understand who God really is and what how he interacts with the universe. Um, and, uh, Dennis McGarry has a similar yet more nuanced view of, of that, but basically he has issues with, can we, can we really allow God, like does our theology, does, does the reality of God allow him to treat Job in this way and to interact with the Hasatan in this way? So those are kind of, kind of the two viewpoints. And I think there's a lot of merit to both of them. I don't think and either of them are like out of bounds for what we understand God to be. Right. The point is whether you're taking the view of a biography approach, meaning this is a real historical person who went through these things and this is exactly how it all went down, or whether you're understanding this as a parable, 
either way, the, the, the text has enough evidence or data to support either one of these views. And you are not throwing the text out and not taking it seriously by saying, here's some things to think about and what to do. Now, notice what we're saying there, though. The text itself could argue either way. If you are just saying, well, yeah, I don't like this story, so it's clearly a parable, that's not how these people came to this, this, this assumption. Right. We care very little about how, and I don't mean this in a mean way, listener, we, we care very little about how you feel about the book. It, it's, it, most of Scripture, all of it, is, is meant to be wrestled with. We're supposed to read it, be confronted by something in ourselves that we know needs to change or a different view that we need to address, and it's supposed to be this wrestling thing. And, and what's ironic is both biography and parable open up that possibility no matter which way. And you come to this, a lot of the same conclusions at the end regardless. Because whether it is a, bi- a biography, it does the same point as what the parable is trying to say, which is it challenges the assumption that we have that evil is always caused because of sin. It challenges the assumption that God's not in control because evil happens. And really the big question theologically that starts to get wrestled with Job, and Job is like the ultimate book of to wrestle the, the concept of theodicy, right? How is God going to win out over evil in in if he's a good God, how does evil exist and why does it exist? And in the middle of that, what do we do to trust him in the midst of it all? So yeah. and in backing up just to your point real quick, uh yeah, we're not throwing out the possibility of it being real reality because because we don't like it, you know. Right. Uh, Dennis McGarry, who would say that this is a parable. He is very, very strong and very clear on you're going to read Job and you're not going to like it. Right. Like, but he, his big point is you have to look exegetically at the text. You have to look at the text. You have to pull out what the text means and says, uh, what it's trying to say. It's not a reader interpretive, like, Oh, how does this make me feel? Or what does this make me think? Uh, but what uh, author's intent, I just had a really long conversation with a friend of mine over, over dinner a week or two ago at the end of we we hiked a Colorado mountain and then we came down and had a steak dinner afterward and, and my buddy David Bartosik up in uh, up in Wisconsin there we had a long discussion about author's intent like why author's intent is so important in any type of communication and why our um, you know in our world today people seem to miss author's intent yep and they only think about how they respond to authors and our our conversation was actually was actually centered on sarcasm like it, does sure. sarcasm have a place and and are are you wrong for being sarcastic if they misinterpret you but i think that the the point is uh, the author uh, you know when somebody communicates they're trying to communicate something specifically and we can't we can't take that into our own hands we have to try to understand what the author is trying to communicate and that's vitally important in the Absolutely. book of job and i think you can get there either looking at this as biography or parable. But one of the one totally. of the pieces of that that's really challenging in this book is uh, this guy, this Hasatan guy, right? The the Satan, the accuser. And in the unpacking of this book, you have to you have to wrestle with and translators and interpreters have wrestled with, is this like the Satan, like capital S, the devil, the bad guy, or is this uh, a different type of spiritual being in the divine council that simply has this interaction with God. So Chris, what do you think? (laughs) Take it. Yeah. Take it away, Chris. Deal with this minor detail here. That's a a huge discussion within uh, scholarship. Yeah. And, And even if it's a parable, it's not denying the fact that this is how things go 
throughout the rest of the book of Scripture. So if someone's trying to base their entire argument of how God interacts with the angelic host, Job is not the only passage in Scripture that deals with it in this way. So there's this idea throughout Scripture, whether we're looking at Psalm 82 or Psalm 89, uh, you know, 2 Kings has a couple of, of opportunities where it pops up. Or, you know, really, you even go back to Genesis 1 through 3, there's this idea that there's a, a multitude of individuals standing around him interacting with him as he sits on his throne, as he's in full charge of the universe, these individuals come to him and talk to him. And we also see this in the book of Revelation, right? You know, you got the four living creatures, you got the 24 elders, you got all these individuals. So there's this idea that, that scholars have called, and the Bible actually calls it in Psalm 82, the divine council, that God himself is, is in his heavenly throne room, and there are individuals there who are doing his bidding. They are his messengers. They are his, his court. And so as this court meets, there might be a decision that needs to be made. And so, you know, we think about it in legal proceedings. And that seems to be what a lot of what's happening in the book of Revelation is there's, you know, arguments being given and evidence being shown and then defenses are made or not. And then punishments are dished out, which is a very common occurrence in the ancient world. And so there, the various authors are using that to sort of spell out this idea. In this case, we, we find it interesting that the sons of God, the Benaha ha, uh, Elohim, this, these individuals that are connected to God, who are made by God, are all gathered, and one of them steps forward. And the, the phrase that we are given there is ha-satan, which satan is used of, of anybody in Scripture who is accusing somebody else of something else, right? So if you were in a court case and somebody stepped up and gave a witness against you, they would be a, a satan. Hasatan seems to only be used when we're talking about this one being who seems to be connected to the serpent in the garden and who seems to be connected to this dragon individual that we have at the end of the book. And, we, and I say that because in the book of Revelation it says, you know, whether he's the dragon or the serpent or this accuser, this, this devil, all of these words get used to this individual. And so this individual steps forward and uh, you know, the court case sort of begins and Job is sort of at the center of it all which creates a tremendous problem for a lot of people in a lot of different ways, right? First time I read Job, I'm like, why is Satan even there? Like, how did that happen? Which, if you were reading closely in Revelation this summer, or I guess last summer, now it feels like just a couple months ago, but it was a whole year ago. In Revelation, it seemed to suggest that this individual may not have been actually kicked out of heaven until some point around either Jesus' birth or, or death and resurrection. We talked about, or, so we, we don't exactly know when he's actually removed from the presence of God, scripturally speaking. Uh, second is this individual is doing his job perfectly. He's accusing. It, there's an element of his personality and his character that this is what he does. He sort of says, hey, you, yeah, I noticed that, but did you notice this? And then, the, you know, the, the, the story begins to unfold from there. Yeah, and that's even why I personally don't love the glossing it as or you know translating it directly as accuser i think nobody if anyone's accusing me like it's automatically negative right right like nobody likes to be accused exactly of anything. i kind of like the idea of prosecutor it kind of is in that legalese type of thing but the prosecutor it's their job to bring up the counterpoints right you know like right if, if you're making some type of point it's good to have a counterpoint like have you considered this point oh yeah let me consider that point and un help you understand right. my point a little bit better why your point isn't valid or why my point totally. is better than your point so i i understand that the the, the term means accuser but i i like prosecutor a yeah. little bit more because it's not quite so uh it doesn't have that connotation 
that it's bad. Like it doesn't make it oh accuser. Anytime I'm accused sure. of something, I'm like I'm like oh, I don't like this. <laughs> Unless the person's right, you, you, like I'm I'm with you. If you're getting right. accused of something, you don't like it. But if if after the long conversation, if you defending yourself and you realize, man, you know what, I really was in the wrong, then you're grateful for that person stepping forward. Sure, but I mean, if if somebody like my, I am the accuser, like I'm automatically right. fighting against. It's, it's right. negative. Whereas prosecutor kind of has the oh, okay, I understand, you know. And there are yeah. times when, like as as pastors, we either have theological ideas or just just practical ideas. Like, hey, I want to do this cool youth event, and somebody says, Alex, have you considered how much that's going to cost? And I'm like, oh. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe we'll do something a little bit different. Sounds like um, a very real example that yeah, you're using. That's interesting. Probably. Yeah. Uh, that's but good. that's that's good. That, so that prosecutor isn't accusing me of anything. They're just issuing a counterpoint. And in this circumstance, within this court case, and this is kind of where I love that you're heading there. What I want to say is there isn't necessarily anything evil in right. this prosecutorial thing, whether it's an accusation it has to be spelled out whether it's true or not. And so if you think about this book, and like I said, it's parts of the book of Revelation or other parts of the Bible in general, there's this almost court case feel to it, and you're just presenting evidence, which doesn't make it evil. You don't necessarily have to have a massive evil undertone to it saying, I'm trying to prove you wrong. It's more of just a, have you considered this, and then what are you going to do with it? And the rest of the book sort of unfolds from this question. Right, right. Because verse 1-9, when God says, you know, have you considered Job? And he, Satan, uh, I'm reading the ESV, so I'm just reading it. No, this, good. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, does Job fear God for no reason? That's not really a disrespectful question. It comes across, you know, a lot of the, you know, we can put in our minds, if we see that Satan and we say, okay, that's definitely the evil one, then it's an evil question. But it is possible that the prosecutor... When, when God says, look at Job, he does everything he wants. And, and counterpoint prosecutor says, is, but is that because you've given him everything? Right. And then the book then unfolds to spell out, well, let's see how he responds. Um, and that also is, is a point for the, um, for the parable, parable, like, is that a word? <laughs> the the, yeah. the parable nature of this that this is this is a a setup for like hey we've presented Job he is completely perfect is he perfect for no reason I don't know let's run a test case here yep you know and that's where a lot of people land with the parable idea right and you're you're pointing that out is this idea of okay it, then it really becomes this question like I said a little bit ago of theodicy how is God going to handle the the problem of evil ultimately with good and are humans you know, what, are, what is our response going to be to that and how does it play out? And, and in this scenario here, I, I want to say again, there isn't necessarily evil intent behind the question, does Job fear God for no reason? Which is why some scholars are quick to say, this may not be the Hasatan, or it might show that Hasatan has an, a certain element to his nature that he's actually made to test and to ask questions. So I've even read a couple of papers that are, are proving, in their opinion, and, and I, I, I like the argument, that even in the, in the garden, it may not be Satan's intent or the serpent's intent to trip Eve up. He's just asking the question. Now, he is twisting the words a little bit, but to test whether she's listening to what God actually said and whether she's going to follow through on what God actually said, which I don't know if that makes him lesser or, or, or what. And in, you know, in the midst of it all, he still ends up being a very evil character who does lots of terrible things, and he, he, 
Judgment's coming for him, absolutely. But you could ask this question, does God fear, or does Job fear God for no reason without having any evil intent behind it and without being in full rebellion? Right, because it comes from a limited perspective, right? We see in verse 9 this uh, prosecutor's assumption of humans, like, oh, they're just motivated by stuff. And maybe part of the purpose of this book is to see that maybe humans aren't just motivated by the stuff that God gives. But, you know, verse 11 uh, the accuser says, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. The accuser's not asking for the the right to punish Job. Right. He's saying to God, stretch out your hand. But God says to him, behold, all that he has is in your hand. So again, that pushes some people to go toward the parable. You know, again, right. it's not... God's the one who got Job into this, right? God's the one who said, have you considered my servant Job? Right. But then God's giving power to the accuser to do whatever he wants. Um, and, and in that case, the accuser has a decision what he's going to do. Yeah. And then what's interesting also with this, and, and this was the last piece of what I wanted to bring up to this, it's interesting that the accuser has the ability to control people groups, to move down and slaughter children. He has the ability to control the wind and make houses fall. He has the ability to take Job's health away from him. So this supernatural being has the power to actually control nature in some way and to do something, which is why mosquitoes are from Satan. No, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> no I mean, that, okay, that last part it was just a joke to sort of break the ice and to smooth this out a little bit. But, but I want you to see that throughout Scripture, angelic hosts have responsibilities and they are used by God to do X, Y, or Z. That doesn't mean that every breeze that happens is like an angel flying past us or something because we, we understand you know, some scientific aspects of that now and that sort of thing. But it does mean that at some point in time, those who are, for example, in, in Revelation, holding back the four winds of judgment are eventually going to release their hold and those winds are going to come in and do their job. So, I'm a little hesitant sometimes then, this is kind of to close that point, I'm a little hesitant when people say this is an act of God. God might have done it, or it might be one of God's angelic hosts who are actually in rebellion against him, utilizing their abilities. They know things that we can't do. We're little, tiny, puny, you know, we're dust, like we're nothing, yet we're God's most important invention, which is crazy. And But these other individuals have power. They have authority. They have things that they are doing that can can affect history. And so then we have to back away from it a little bit and go, all right, this 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 book opens up some questions for us that we need to sit back and relax a little bit and go, maybe I don't have it all figured out, which I think is part of what this whole conversation is about. Right, right. And I think that point points to the biographic nature of the book, that these spirit beings are, are real. This is not uh, some hypothetical. Right. You've got real spiritual forces and powers. Um, which Paul calls powers and principalities yeah. in the New Testament. Yeah. And... Uh, they have limited knowledge, right? Like right. They, they think things about humans. Uh, maybe Job is just obeying to get what he wants. You know, I, I mean, maybe you've seen that in your life. I've seen that in my life. I grew up seeing other people get in trouble, and I was like, oh, I'm going to do good. Not necessarily because I had a good heart all the time, but because I was like, I don't want to get in trouble. We see the benefits of doing good, so maybe Job is doing that. And he's accusing. I think there's there's a challenging question here of like, does God know how Job will respond? And is, is the test going to be a real test if God actually knows? And there, there's a lot of thoughts about that, and maybe we don't. Which I'm, I'm way more comfortable with that if it's a parable and they're trying to portray God in this way. 
the sovereignty of God, as you mentioned in part one, can't be denied right. in this book. So there's a part of this that just says it seems that he knows how Job's going to respond, uh, and whether it's a parable or whether it's a biographical person, there's elements of this that sort of spell out to us maybe less questions about this is how I'm supposed to handle it and more of how would I handle it? Or now that I'm going through this rough road, what am I going to use to sort of walk through this? And am I going to trust God or am I going to do things my own way? Right. And because the, you know, there, there's a, I think there's a biblical theology here of the testing, right? And you mentioned right. the testing right. of, you know, we've got the testing of Adam and Eve. We have a testing of Abraham. We've got testing of Job. And then we have the testing of Jesus in, in yep. both uh, the, the wilderness and in the garden of Gethsemane, totally. which led to the cross. Um, so the, the question is, well, if God already knew the answer to the test, why does he go through the test? But I think, I think within the sovereignty of God, I think that's okay. Some people have a hard time with that and they, right. they push to the parable nature. The test must be real. Either God limited his knowledge and we can go down the rabbit trail of like in the view of open theism that this, this could be a biography, but God didn't actually know because of multiple possibilities. God knows all the possibilities, but he don't know which possibility will happen. And I, I would re- completely reject the view of Correct. open theism on that. Um, but, uh, so all that to say, we believe yeah. God's fully in charge. We believe that humanity does have some type of role in, in this earth thing. There are spiritual beings that are working and doing things, whether it's this divine counsel or this Hasatan figure. And in the midst of all that, the big question of Job is the question that we all wrestle with. How does, why does evil happen at all? And why does evil happen to really good people? And at the end of the book, we don't necessarily have answers that satisfy us, but I think that's part of what the book is saying to us and, and asking us to consider and be okay with. Yeah, I think I think what I pull out of Job, what is God trying to teach us? What is the author's intent meaning? I think it's that we have a very limited understanding yes. of justice. And I think that's why God takes Job and starts talking about the universe, and he says, listen, the universe is so complex that, you know, imagine uh, every little injustice against us was was meted out right away right you know justice was served right away good and bad well you think about the whole complex uh network of just human interactions like you know uh we have a close family member and that close family member dies that's not justice because i didn't do anything wrong maybe they did something wrong and they and they deserve that or maybe they didn't do anything wrong but somebody else did and like it's just such a web and there are so many, like, justice for one might feel like justice to a person, but injustice to another, or when justice is, is taken out on someone, it affects other people that maybe don't deserve it. And I think the point there is that our our understanding of the way the universe works is so limited that we have a, a very limited understanding of justice. So when we look at the problem of evil in the world, part of, part of that, are wrestling with that is just to step back and be like, you know what? I don't get it. Right. I don't understand the world, the universe, right. Good and evil are so complex in the, the unique web of relationships. We all have are so complex that we can't really understand it. We have to trust the sovereign God who made it all and understands it all. He's dealing with justice the way that he knows is right. And so our, our role then is just to trust God and to right. say, okay, Whatever's happening to me, whether it's good or bad, whether it feels right or feels wrong, uh, God's in control of it. And I, I think it's interesting that, you know, the Satan, Hasatan, adversary, prosecutor, whatever you want to call him, doesn't return at the end of the story. Totally. Like, he just kind of is there to set it up. Right. But God's the one who, who finishes the story. And he's also limited in his knowledge. 
Yes. Considerably. So I think the, the main takeaway that we definitely need to take from it is the only person that, that has full knowledge and has nothing to fear is God himself, which I would rather trust him than myself or than this, this Satan figure or any of the other angelic beings. All right, so what are some you know tidbits and nuggets that we would pull out from this that, that are good to talk about? Yeah, just from the book of Job, you mean the yep. interesting nuggets? There's a few interesting nuggets that I've come across that I just thought would be interesting to share. Uh, the first one is the use of the term Barak in chapters 1 and 2. So uh, Barak is the Hebrew word for blessing, and we see it. It's used six times in, in chapter 1 and 2, but most interestingly in uh, chapter 111, this is the Satan saying to God, but stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So that's so interesting that the mm-hmm. word there means curse because he uses it in bless earlier in the chapter. I'm scanning for it, but I don't see it. Um, but just the the term means bless, but there we see it, it means curse. So it's one of those words where you can use it, and its literal meaning means one thing, but you can use the same word and give it a figurative meaning Yes. which actually means the opposite. And and one thing that's so interesting about Job to me is that Hebrew poetry in Hebrew is just an amazing language that we don't understand. Yep. Yeah, Hebrew is so punny. There's so many words that sound like other words that it's just full of puns. And when we translate it, we miss all these crazy puns. We miss all these crazy jokes. There's all these crazy, like, sounds like this, but actually means this. And this is one of those things that we miss because here we have a word... We, we read it in our English Bible and it says curse, but it's actually the word Barak, which means bless. And, and we do this in English occasionally. It's just language to me is so interesting. I love language. I love how we ex, like expression. Expression is so weird. We say things figuratively. Yeah. Uh, so like I thought of a few like sometimes if I said like, oh, man, that that's so bad. Like, right. I actually don't mean bad. I actually mean the opposite. I mean, good. Or sometimes we'll say like, oh, this chocolate cake is just sinful. And, uh, we don't, we don't actually mean sinful usually has a connotation of like bad. We should avoid it. But when I say, oh, this, you know, I mean, you even see like devil's food cake. It's so sinfully delicious. And it actually means good. I don't know. Did you think of any? Yeah. I've got like just the concept of swear, you know, that, and we do this even with words where, you know, if I, if, if God is doing something and I'm excited about that and I say, oh my God, and I'm excited about what God's doing, nobody would have any problem with that. If I am upset about something and I say that exact same phrase, then someone's going to pull me aside and be like, pastor, we don't use the Lord's name in vain. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and, but even the word swear itself, like it, we're really supposed to, you know, swear, take an oath to do something. And then, but if I'm swearing, it's a problem, you know? Yeah. And so there's this element of, we need to know the, the intent of the person saying it. And the word swear is good in that regard. And in that case, that's, that kind of fits really closely into what's happening here, right? Yeah. I can bless you with my language, Barack. I can say, what a blessing upon Alex. Now, if I also said, now may a curse fall upon you, I might use the exact same word, but I'm really blessing you. It's just with a yeah. curse. It's yeah, with, and we, negative. And we do this with the term literally too. Like literally right. means it actually happened. But sometimes we we'll be like, man, that joke was so funny. I literally just peed my pants. You know, well, unless there's actual pee in my actual pants. Correct. And I didn't literally pee my pants. I actually did the opposite. I figuratively my pants Correct. but I, but the reason middle schoolers and high schoolers listen very closely to that part of yes. the podcast just go back 20 seconds literally means literally 
It means actually. And you shouldn't use it all the time. Okay, keep going. Yeah, it means reality. (laughs) But, but, but so then the, so then you back up and you say the question, well, why would I use the word literally when I mean the opposite? Well, it's for emphasis. It's just, it's, that's the beauty of language. Like we use a word that doesn't mean, but everyone, hopefully everyone listening to this podcast was, doesn't actually think I peed my pants and I like, I need to run home. Like they just, oh yeah, you know, he's using that. So we have the term Barak here used to curse. So this, uh, this challenge to God is Job will barack your face. And then if you flip down to 122, it says, Job, or verse 20, let's start in 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground, and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's room, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Barak be the name of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And I just get goosebumps reading that. Like, Satan, you were actually right. Job did barack God like you said he would. But in being so right, Satan, you were so wrong. Exactly. Like there's there's that word play and, and we miss it in our right. translation. Like right. Satan goes Satan goes, Job's gonna barack you. Oh, and Job does barack you, but Job right. does it in the exact opposite way. Right. And to me, oh that's just oh I get goosebumps thinking. But that's about how that. it's supposed to be read. Yeah. And so when we're reading it in Hebrew, we're like, whoa, that's really cool. I can't believe that this story is doing this. Which shows us that whoever is putting this book together in its final form it's is, is a genius literarily. And I would suggest, and you would agree with this, that that's the Holy Spirit speaking and just going, are you noticing the nuance of these words? And, you know, you go to then James and he says, you know, out of the same mouth can come praise and out of the same mouth can come curses. This is what it's talking about. So we should use our mouth to praise as opposed to use our mouth to curse. It's just an interesting thing. It's good. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me. It points toward, I use Job when I teach uh, understanding the Bible, or we use a big word called hermeneutics. I use Job a lot because there's so much, Hebrew is so interesting and we just miss it in translation. Right. There's so many things like this. There's like in chapter two when he's like skin for skin, like nobody knows what that means. Right. Like when he's like skin for skin, like yep. you're like, what is he talking about? We don't understand that. Hebrew has a lot of jokes. It has a lot of puns. It has a lot of parables. We just miss it. And the book of Job has a ton of phrases and words that are only used in Job. Yeah. And we have found no other place where they're used. And so one of my professors said, maybe 30% of Job, we don't even know really what it's saying. And I'm like, that's not helpful to me. And he's like, that's not really my problem. He's like, I, you know, we know how to translate the word, but we don't know exactly what the author is saying or why he's saying it. That's what my professor's point was. It's not that we're like, you can't trust the translation of the Bible you have in English, but it is more of a, this word only appears in the Hebrew one time, and it happens to be in Job. And thirty, I think 30% of our one-time usages all are in the book of Job, Yeah, which is crazy. So it tells you this book is very, very unique, and it makes us wrestle, and it's intended to make us yeah. wrestle. Chris, very unique is redundant. Very unique. It's either unique or it's not. It's either one of a kind. It's it is very uniquely one of a kind. unique. Wow. Wow. All uh, right. What's the other the, tip the, the other, you got? The other nugget I have is this is just something cool somebody pointed out, uh, pointed out to me one time. So we're looking at Job 1-2. Uh, Job's got seven sons, three daughters. He's got 700 sheep, 300 camels, 500 oxen, 500 or 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys. The female donkeys. You can't leave those the out. female donkeys. Uh, ver- chapter 42, verse 12. After all of that that I just read is taken away, uh, Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than the beginning. He had 14,000 sheep. That's double. T- twice. He had 6,000 camels. That's double. 1,000 yoke of oxen. Also double. And 1,000 female donkeys. Definitely double. Yep. He also had seven sons. Oh. Not doubled. Not doubled. And three daughters. Hmm. 
So everything got doubled but his kids. Yes. And I think there's a there's a point being made here that's kind of a it's not a minor point to the huge theology of the book. No. But I think it is really cool that uh, maybe what God is saying here is that Job did have his children doubled because though because children because people are eternal. Right. And even though Job's Job went from ten kids to twenty kids. Right. Uh, just ten of them weren't living with him right. on earth anymore. I think that's just maybe a cool little nugget to point out. Even even in the story, God shows the value of human life and the, the eternal nature of human life that Job didn't, right. oh yeah, God, don't worry, Job, I replaced your 10 kids with 20 by giving you 20 more. It's like, no, Job, I understand that those 10 kids are still your kids and you still love them like kids. So when you have 10 more, yeah, I, I did double your kids because those those 10 beforehand, those yeah. are still your kids. Which I want the record to show that Alex thinks all animals are terrible and they're not worth anything. I mean, I'm not going to die. <laughs> we are a pet. All dogs do not go yes, to heaven. I'm, I'm not a pet guy. I'm just going <laughs> to just gonna throw that out there. Animals belong outside. I don't disagree uh, in many ways with you. So speaking of pets and animals, yeah. there are two very interesting animals in the book of Job. So we're not going to do four hours. This is our final final point of this podcast, so you all can be grateful or whatever you want to be here. So there's two big animals, and I mentioned this in the sermon that I would bring this up in the podcast. There are two beasts that occur in chapter 40 and 41. And I first of all, I think they're interesting for a reason that I'll point out. And second, I think they're important because they really help make the point of the whole book. So the first one is behemoth, and this is a large animal that lives on land. He eats grass like an ox. I'm in Job 40, if you want to follow along. Uh, verse That's verse 15. And then verse 16, his strength is in his loins and the power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar, and the sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze and his, his limbs like bars of iron. And so many scholars have tried to figure out like what's going on here. I've heard everything from this is a dinosaur to this is a rhinoceros to this is a, some kind of strange alligator to, you know. Basically, the point of this isn't to like figure out zoologically which animal this is. That's not the point of this, and nor am I even going to go into that because I don't, I don't know. I want verse 16 above my way room. <laughs> his strength and his loins and his power and the muscles of his belly. There you go. Uh, yeah, I think that would be one of those situations where it would need to be literal uh, to be on there. So, um, and I would say that of myself as well. All right, so, but, but you read this and you go, whoa, this beast is crazy. And the point that God is making at the end of chapter 40 here is that that beast could run you over and you would die. He is so powerful and big. He's a beast on the land that is so mighty that if you faced off against it, it's going to crush you. And his point partly is this beast can't be controlled by mankind and it's dangerous to mankind, but it serves a place on this planet. It, it deserves to exist just as much as you or I do. Right. Then secondarily, we move to a beast of the sea in verse 41, and we talk about Leviathan, this individual that you, you know, verse 41.1, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? The answer to all those is no, by the way. Uh, you know, th these are asking questions that you should answer with no, 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 I can't do any of these things. And uh, I love verse five. Will you play with him as with a bird or will you put him on a leash for your girls? <laughs> well, I, I love, I love eight. Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it. Again. Exactly right. So, so basically what 
what we see in chapter 40 is there's this beast on the land who has mighty power and is able to crush human beings. And then you've got in 41, this beast of the sea who's able to crush human beings. And you don't mess with either of them. They're both dangerous. They're both scary. And what I wanted to point out in the podcast, this is a crazy little uh, tidbit that I found recently in a paper that I thought was interesting. You have a beast of the sea and a beast of the land. Does that not sound familiar? The book of Revelation. Yeah. And so a lot of scholars have obviously pointed out, in Daniel where this comes up again, right? There's a beast of the sea, there's a beast of the land, and then in the book of Revelation it's sort of fulfilled. But most people leave the Job 40, 41 question out because they don't think of these as necessarily supernatural beings. And I'm not saying that they are supernatural, but what someone said was it's interesting that we have three instances of this in the Scripture all three of these individuals are mighty, powerful. They can crush human beings. They actually, you know, in the book of Revelation, they're leading people astray. In the book of Daniel, they're leading people astray. In Job, it seems to be talking more about actual zoological animals of some sort. But the point is made of, of all of this, and it's this. Every being that I have created has a purpose and deserves to live until I'm done with them. So when we start to struggle with this question of evil and all this kind of stuff, we're like, man, I just wish God would destroy evil altogether. Well, he did that in Jesus Christ once and for all, and one day Jesus will return, and that beast of the land and the beast of the sea will be put away, along with this Hasatan character. All of the evil that's running rampant in our planet will be dealt with once and for all at the end, but it already has been dealt with. Back to that, you talked about it on the podcast months ago. The inauguration of Jesus' reign and rule is here. Yeah, We're living in it now. So I don't have to be afraid of the beast of the land and the beast of the sea. It might kill me, <laughs> you know? Like if I'm going to go take a picture of a rhinoceros and right, like I'm right in front of it and it, it kills me. And that, let's say that that's what 40 is yeah. talking about is this massive rhino. And I'm like, this thing's so amazing. And then it runs over me. No one should be questioning, oh, can't, how did this evil happen? Chris is an idiot. He shouldn't <laughs> have been standing right next to this thing. Or, you know, if I'm going to swim in the ocean underneath this massive leviathan and it comes swimming up toward me and I take a fish hook and I'm like, you know, yeah. like it's not going to do anything. And what God's saying is everything I've created has a purpose. I understand it. You need to be careful with some of these things. But just because it exists doesn't make it evil. And it doesn't mean that my planet is evil. It's a good planet with lots of beautiful, amazing things. Do you trust me? Do you rest in me? Are you going to let me be in charge? Yeah, and I think we see more the the beauty of Hebrew, Hebrew poetry to like set up the spectrum. Like strongest in the sea, strongest in the land. Like we're going to put those two totally. as if to encompass everything. I think it's also interesting here. We have two of those those words that you were saying that we don't have anywhere else in the Bible. Like right. behemoth and Leviathan are just, we took the Hebrew sound of this word that we're not exactly sure totally. what it is, and we just took those sounds and made them a little bit English. So, we, you know, for example, like the way it goes the other way, you know, when France was in, interacted with the internet the first time, they were like, we can make up a French word or we can just call it lay internet and so they went with lay internet right <laughs> right easier which yeah. yeah which has no meaning to them except you know and so in the same way like we've taken this word and we've just we see in hebrew the word behemoth and we're like oh yeah behemoth and in leviathan right Tana. yeah uh, you know oh it's leviathan like we don't really know what these creatures are necessarily Correct. but uh, I, I agree with you i think these are zoological creatures they're not Maybe not spirit beings. Maybe they are. Yeah, and I'm not making but, the case that they are, but it is interesting that this motif at least starts in Job and then gets picked up potentially again in Daniel, but with a new feel to it. 
and then it gets picked up again in Revelation. So I'm not necessarily even saying yeah. that they're all the same, but it's more of the land and and, and the sea spectrum, thing yeah. shows that everything on earth has a purpose. Everything under the sun has some type of reality that you and I need to, to wrestle with and ultimately understand that we're going to lose if we take these things on. And the questions that often lead us to questioning because of Job itself that's part of the the message of Job is don't question what you can't question. You don't even understand. Right. Right. And that I think like, you know, like you're saying, uh, these, these creatures are not evil creatures. Like God created nope. them with purpose and maybe we just don't get it. And I think that's, you know, you, you don't read Job in a vacuum, right? You also read it with Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. Sure. Like these wisdom books are, are offering perspectives on the world. But one of them is, you know, in as we understand wisdom and, and God and justice, yeah, we we have very finite minds that if even the accuser in the courtroom of God didn't quite understand everything about humans, maybe we don't quite understand everything about how God interacts exactly. with, with justice. And maybe we just we need to have the long view, right? Right. Uh, Jesus is coming. God is dealing with evil. We've seen, we've read the book of Revelation. We see that. So in the moment, understanding justice, it's really complex. It's uh, really outside our scope. So we do justice as we can in our life as God leads us. And we just trust God for the rest of it when it doesn't look like justice is happening on our terms. Absolutely. It couldn't have been better said by me. So good job. Well, thanks, Chris. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening.